7 verses 10 through 12, uh, departing from our series on Ephesians. And the reason I'm doing that is for a broad concern and also a narrow concern. And the broad concern is a sense that there's a powerlessness in the church today. A powerless against the culture. The culture is advancing and rotting and the church is not, seemingly. And that points to something amiss, something that's a problem. And then there's a narrow concern, which I won't go into, but uh, many of you can probably perceive what that is. We'll pick up in verse 10 through 12, and then I'll give the context surrounding these verses. So the Lord said to Joshua, rise up. Why is it that you have fallen on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. And they have even taken some of the things under the ban and have both stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have also put them among their own things. Therefore, the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, for they have become accursed. I will not be with you any more unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. So the background of this, of course, is that being in the book of Joshua, this is the book of conquest. God has promised the land to the Israelites. The inhabitants of the land are utterly wicked and God is evicting them. And he's bringing his people into that land. And they've already had a mighty victory over Jericho. And they're fresh off that victory. And the the waters of the Jordan River stood up at one end and they crossed over on dry ground. They marched around the city seven times. The walls fell flat. They, they came in and routed the people of Jericho. A great victory. They're on a high. Next stop, I. That's the pronunciation, basically, of it. Uh, you may have heard people call it AI, but <laughs> it seems to mean something different these days. So, um, I. But I was a dinky town compared to Jericho. It's just a a little place. And so they're ready to go take on that little town. But there's a problem that has emerged, and you see that in verse 1. But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban, the accursed things, the KJV says. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban, Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. Joshua didn't know about it, and the elders didn't seemingly know about it. It seems that no one knew about it except Achan and his family. But Joshua then sends men to scope out Ai and spy out the city, and they come back, and they're confident and relaxed. And no one needs to be terribly concerned here about this little town. We don't need to send very many soldiers, they said. Maybe 3,000 at most, that'll do the job. This is going to be a cakewalk. Well, I was not a cakewalk. They came out, and they were fierce and courageous, way beyond their numbers, and the Israelites turned and fled with their tail between their legs, so to speak, and the inhabitants of Ai chased them out. And back to their camp, and Israel lost 36 men that day, and I lost none. And Joshua and the other Israelites are in shock. What in the world? What has happened? 
How could this be? And what is going to become of us now if we can't even beat this podunk little town? What's going to become of us now? There's a real practical concern here. Verse 6, Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell on the earth, fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. So they stayed on the ground all day long, and it's very likely then that they didn't eat or drink and were fasting until evening. And in verses 7 through 9, we have Joshua's prayer of complaint. Alas, O Lord God, why? Why did you ever bring us, this people, over the Jordan? Only to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? There he sounds like the grumblers of the first generation who constantly complained in the wilderness that God had brought them out there just to kill them. If only we had been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan. Oh Lord, what can I say since Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and they will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? That's a pretty good prayer, really. Good prayers have good arguments for God. Compelling reasons that you present to God on why he should do something. It's one of the arts of prayer if you study them in the scripture. How to present a good argument before God. Why should God rise up and save his people? And this prayer has that. And there's a lament here and a fervency. I don't think any of us could imagine Joshua praying this in some kind of a dry, mundane, monotone fashion. I would imagine that it's quite fervent. This is desperation. They were utterly perplexed. This absolutely made no sense whatsoever. God had promised them the land. He had brought them through the wilderness. He dried up the Jordan for them. He gave them victory over the much larger city of Jericho. So why are they failing now? This makes no sense. But even though this is a good thing for Joshua and the elders to do, it's good for them to pray. It's the right thing to do. It's good to humble themselves and get on the ground on their face and put dust on your head and fast and call out to God in fervency. That's a good thing to do. It's hard to quarrel with his actions here and with the response. Even though Joshua and all Israel had no idea what the problem is and why they lost to I, When the Lord answers Joshua, it sounds an awful lot like a rebuke, doesn't it? Verse 10, so the Lord said to Joshua, rise up. Why is it that you have fallen on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. And they have even taken some of the things under the ban and have both stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have also put them among their own things. Rise up, Joshua. Why, have I done something wrong by praying? Why have you fallen on your face? Isn't that the right thing to do? We're humbling ourselves before you, God. We're seeking your face. We're looking for answers here. God's answer comes and it gets right to the point. 
You have sin in your camp. To be specific, a sinner who has taken things I said not to take. And you'd better deal with it now. So why does God sound impatient? What did God... Was, was he blaming Joshua here? What did Joshua do wrong exactly? How was he supposed to know Achan had taken the forbidden fruit? Why did 36 men have to die because of Achan's disobedience? And why didn't God tell Joshua about this beforehand so that we could prevent this defeat against I and the death of 36 men? And of course, as is often the case in Scripture, these, these questions are not answered. They come to our minds, but they're not answered. And that leaves us with one of two choices. We either default to trusting God or we default to distrust. We assume God must have had a good reason for all of these things that he did and the way he did them. Or we assume he doesn't have any good reason. And the things he does are always capricious and irrational. Well, is God good? Yes, he is. Is he infinite in wisdom? He is. If so, then he must have a good reason for the way he deals with us. And here is a conjecture. This is all. Was there not pride among the Israelites after their victory at Jericho? Do we not see some boasting in self and in their superior numbers as they venture out against I? They said, do not let all the people go up. Only about two or 3,000 men need to go up to I. Don't make all the people toil up there for their few. Were they really depending on God there? Or were they trusting in themselves and their own strength? And what does the scripture say over and over and over again about pride? And what God thinks of that. He opposes pride. He opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He hates a proud look. Show me a man who's proud and I'll show you someone who's about to have a wake-up call. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Who knows, the 36 men who died that day might have been foremost in boasting. I don't know. God only knows, but we do know one thing. They were not innocent men. There is no such thing. There's no one innocent. Comparatively, or, you know, comparatively, there can be an innocent man compared to someone else. Or you could be accused of a particular crime and not have done it, and then in that sense you're innocent. But before God and before the standards of His holy law, there is no such thing as an innocent person. There is no one righteous, not one. There is no one who seeks for God. There is no one who understands They've all turned aside and become together useless. Our throats are an open grave. The poison of ass is under our tongues. And on and on it goes. That's who we are. Such that if God would choose to do so, He could call our number up any day without notice. And it would be our last breath. And He would have done no injustice to us. We are not owed any extra time than what we've been given already in this life. Every minute we breathe is a minute of grace, not due to our merit or because we deserve to be here, because we deserve to live, we don't. And so we know that, we know that the 36 men who died were just 
God just allowed them to be killed, though they were innocent men and did not deserve to die. Thankfully, because of what Christ has done for every believer, they die, we die and go to heaven. But the point is, is that God doesn't owe us any more time. There's a second lesson here that ignorance will not necessarily spare you. Ignorance of a problem will not necessarily spare you the consequences of a problem. Ignorance of Achan's sin did not spare the Israelites the beating they took that day. If you eat something poisonous in ignorance, you very well may get poisoned, even though you did it ignorantly. I can vouch for the fact that ignorance of the speed limit will not keep you from getting pulled over. And it won't necessarily get you out of a ticket either. So don't get comfortable with ignorance. Some people run to ignorance as though it's a hiding place. It's not a hiding place. 36 men died that day because of a problem unbeknownst to the overwhelming majority of Israelites. The third lesson, all sin is offensive to God. Think about this for a minute. What had Achan done that was really so bad? He pilfered loot from the city of Jericho that God said not to take, and then he pretended that he hadn't done so. What's the big deal about that? It's just stuff. That was probably Achan's thinking. What's the big deal? What's it going to hurt? And then the logical reasons start to multiply in your head as to why this would be okay. And then from the being okay, it goes to, this would be good, actually. This would be a good thing to do. I can use this stuff. This can be a, a safety net for my family, and we can get ahead. So it's altruism, of course. It's for my family. Or I could give some of it to the Lord. Why burn useful things when they can be utilized for good? Besides, I don't understand why it has to be burned. What's the point of that? It makes no sense to me. And of course, it must make sense to me. I get to exempt myself from, dis from obeying a command if it doesn't make any sense to me. So the carnal reasoning goes. If God was just looking for a good bonfire, I mean, he'll get a bonfire still. Lots of other people are, you know... <coughs> devoting all the things to, to be burned. He's not going to miss a few things that I take. Well, such was the thinking, perhaps, of Achan. Such was the thinking of Adam and Eve when they took from the forbidden tree. What's the big deal? It's just fruit. Such was the thinking of King Saul when he spared Agag and some of the best of the sheep and the oxen. Why do we need to destroy such things? They can be used for good. We'll devote some of these as a sacrifice to the Lord and then he'll be happy with our theft. We can make good use of them and such is the thinking of all carnal-minded sinners who wink at sin and can't quite relate with a holy God's anger against human insubordination. Listen to me carefully. If God says no and you don't understand why, rest assured God understands why. The lawgiver understands it. And so it doesn't matter actually whether you understand it or not. 
Sometimes God let the Israelites have loot after particular battles. So there really was nothing inherently immoral about taking loot. Sometimes he let them. What makes something wrong is if God says it is. That is the prerogative of the lawgiver. But it's not arbitrary. It's not just whimsical. God has reasons. His job is to determine such things. That's his prerogative. Our job is to obey. The point is we may not always understand why we are required to do something or why we are not required to do another thing. But he does understand. And we can trust his wisdom when we have none. Lesson four, consequences, sin of sin must be dealt with quickly. The sin must be dealt with quickly by God's people. The consequences of sin in the camp were severe. Israel lost. They fled before tiny town. 36 men died. And those consequences would continue mercilessly if Israel failed to extricate the tumor growing in their midst. Verse 12 Therefore the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turned their backs before their enemies, for they have become accursed. I will not be with you any more unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. If Israel was punished for unknowingly having a thief in their midst, how much more would they be if they deliberately harbored one in their midst? If you shelter one who is accursed, then you are accursed. Either you stand with God against sin, or you are part of the problem. The people of God will have no power, none, if they allow sin to continue in the camp and if they protect it and nurture it. They will lose battle after battle, time after time. There is a righteous tolerance of sin, which we would call patience with one another. That is a virtue, but there is also a sinful tolerance where sin is winked at and treated lightly and protected. And that will quench the power of God from the people of God faster than anything. And note, prayer alone will not fix the powerlessness problem if there's sin in the camp. In Acts 4, the apostles were arrested and they were threatened by the Sanhedrin and they were told to quit preaching Christ and the resurrection. And their response was to pray. And they prayed and the place shook and they were given boldness and they preached the word in boldness in spite of the threats of persecution. They had God's power with them. But in that situation, there was not sin festering in the camp. And prayer was the answer. It was the solution. But for Joshua and the Israelites, there was a sin problem that had to be dealt with. And prayer alone would not fix the problem. Prayer brought them to the mercy seat. And God heard and God revealed to them what needed to be done. But it was not the terminus the end point. Prayer was inquiring of the Lord. What has gone wrong, Lord? What has happened? Why has this happened to us? What should we do? 
But once they heard from God, then it was time to get up off your face and act. Rise up. Why is it that you've fallen on your face? And think of this with respect to the church today. If the church does everything else well, which is not terribly likely, prayer meetings, which is rare in our day to every, for churches to even have them, Bible reading, good preaching, evangelism, solemn and reverential worship, if, if the church does all those things well, but does not remove the leaven from the dough, the church will not stand before its enemies. God's power will be conspicuously absent. Verse 12, therefore the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. Verse 13, B, you cannot stand before your enemies until you have removed the things under the ban from your midst. So, the answer here was not to pray more and longer and fast longer. The solution was to deal with sin by dealing with the sinner and that without delay. So the next day, all Israel was to consecrate themselves and then the process of ferreting out the guilty one would begin. Lots were cast to determine from which tribe the troublemaker had come. And you know, God could have just told them it's Achan. He's in tent number five. He could have done that. But he goes through this process of lots, casting lots. So they determine which tribe it's coming from. And then from there, it's narrowed down to extended family groups. And then to households and finally to the guilty household of Achan. And throughout the whole process, Achan never comes forward to confess. He waits it out possibly hoping against hope that he wouldn't be exposed, getting more nervous, I suppose, by the minute. Be sure your sin will find you out. The scripture says, you can run, but you can't hide, is one of our proverbs. The lot falls to him. He can no longer hide. He confesses to everything, but his confession did not save him at that point. It's already been ferreted out. You didn't come clean on your own. You're simply now exposed and there's no denying it. Verses 24 through 26, we read, Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that belonged to him. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned them with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. They raised over him a great heap of stones that stands to this day, and the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore the name of that place has been called the Valley of Echor to this day. Well, apparently Achan's family was complicit in it, in his theft and his cover-up. They knew that he had contraband in the ground under his tent and they said nothing and therefore they were stoned along with him. Like Sapphira, the wife of Ananias in Acts 5, they chose loyalty to kin over loyalty to God. Blood is thicker than water, 
as the saying goes. But Aiken's family learned the hard way that you can wallow in that blood. God expects us to love and honor Him above every other person, even the nearest and dearest relations. Deuteronomy 13, 6-11 warns, If your brother, your mother's son, or your son, or your daughter, or the wife you cherish, or your friend who is as your own soul, entice you secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods whom neither you nor your fathers have known or the gods of the peoples who are around you, near you or far from you, from one end of the earth to the other end. You shall not yield to him or listen to him and your eyes shall not pity him, nor shall you spare or conceal him, but you shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death and afterwards the hand of all the people. So you shall stone him to death because he has sought to seduce you from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Then all Israel will hear and be afraid and will never again do such a wicked thing among you. In other words, if you practice this, you don't have to keep practicing this all the time and doing it day after day after day because then people will fear and be afraid of doing it. In Luke 14, 26-27, Jesus likewise warned, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and, cannot, and come after me cannot be my disciple. The love for the Lord is to so exceed love for relations. There's no comparison. It's not that the Lord's first place and then my family's second place and it's just, just down the rung a little bit in second place. No, it's way down. It's not even in sight compared to one's love and devotion to the Lord. Think about how difficult this would have been for the Israelites to pick up stones and kill Achan and his family. They had just discovered this, and they had just discovered his guilt. They didn't know who it was until the lot finally fell to him. There was little time for anybody to form any grudge against him. It's doubtful that anybody had any sense of animosity toward him to motivate them. Some would have wanted to spare him, For the sake of his children, some would have perhaps wanted to spare the children, even if they granted that Achan must die. The text makes no mention of his wife, so either she was also stoned but unmentioned, or he was a widower, perhaps. It would not be surprising if very few Israelites felt like stoning him. But they had to, whether they felt like it or not. Ultimately, they obeyed the Lord. They feared God more than Achan. They had greater regard for God than their feelings. Apparently, unlike many modern-day American churchgoers, they didn't consider themselves to be nicer than God. They reduced the matter to one simple question. Did God say to stone Achan and his family? 
If God said it, then it must be done. Case closed. No further deliberations necessary. And then there's the self-interest side of things. We're not going to win another battle here if we don't do what God says. And we'll be annihilated. And what will become of our noble-minded tolerance for Achan's sin then? So pick up a rock and throw it, and throw it hard. Do what you've got to do with resolve. It doesn't matter if you feel sorry for Achan and his family. Such feelings have nothing to do with the duty at hand. You shall not pity, God said. Do we trust God or do we not? comes down to that. Do I think I'm nicer than God? Do I think I have more information? Do I think I understand the matters of guilt and innocence and justice better than God understands them? They did what they had to do and they were rewarded for it. God turned from the fierceness of His anger. Fierceness of His anger. What an expression. God is fiercely angry with things we think are no big deal. It's just a little stuff. Who cares? What's the big deal? God is fiercely angry with things we think are no big deal. What are you so mad about? That's our mentality. And God is fiercely angry. They then conquered I easily, and they went on from victory to victory to victory. Think of this with respect to the church today. If there's anything that the church fails in today worse than prayer meetings, it would be church discipline. Confronting those who trouble the church, and when necessary, putting them out of the church. The powerlessness that we see is not inexplicable. There is a reason for it. And this is surely one of the chief reasons, in addition to our prayerlessness. But based on anecdotal evidence, it would appear that church discipline is rarely practiced in churches today. And it's not because we're so well behaved that it isn't necessary. It isn't that. We have many excuses. Let's consider some of them. Objection. This is the Old Testament. This has nothing to do with the church. Answer, it was written for our instruction. First Corinthians 10, which I'll read in a, in a minute. And the Old Testament death penalty passages that deal with removing the wicked man have as their New Testament counterpart instruction on church discipline. God does not change. God was holy then. He is holy now. He was fiercely angry with sin now. He's fiercely then. He's fiercely angry with sin now. It's not that God was mean and harsh back then. He's learned how to become nice now. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Unaddressed sin was a problem for the people of God then. It is a problem for the people of God now. 1 Corinthians 10, 11-12 said, These things happened to them, speaking of the Old Testament saints and their experience, happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction. 
us New Testament people, they're for our instruction. We should read these things. We should gain understanding and insight and instruction from them. For our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is God-breathed, or given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. All scripture is profitable. That would include Joshua chapter 7. Whereas the Old Testament people of God executed the death penalty on troublemakers, the New Testament people of God are to carry out what is called church discipline. And just like the Israelites in Achan's day, they are to be faithful to carry out what must be done, whether they feel like it or not. Matthew 18, 15-17, Jesus says, Moreover, if thy brother trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. And he shall hear thee. Thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And he, if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. The Jews did not associate with heathens and publicans. They disassociated from them, had nothing to do with them. That is the meaning of of this with respect to unrepentant church members. It does not mean, as many have erroneously argued, that the church is to evangelize that person and treat them just as they would any other lost person they are evangelizing, which usually includes association. In 1 Corinthians 5, you have the situation where a man has his father's wife. He is sexually involved with his stepmother. And the church in Corinth is harboring this immoral man in this incestuous relationship. And he tells the Corinthians that they must remove the immoral man from their midst in verse 13. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. That is a quotation or at a minimum an allusion to various Old Testament passages in the law where the death penalty was employed to remove troublemakers from Israel. Deuteronomy 13.5, 17.7, 21.21, 22.21-22, .21, and verse 24, all have that very phrase. And that tells you something. It tells you that church discipline is the new covenant equivalent to the Old Testament death penalty. Not with respect to the magistrate and what a magistrate might do in the civil realm of society. They don't practice church discipline and they may practice the death penalty legitimately. But we're talking about the church here with respect to how the people of God are to deal with troublemaking sinners in their midst. We don't stone them. We excommunicate them if necessary. Another objection. This is not loving or this is not showing people the kind of grace we're supposed to show people. This is not being patient with other people's sins. Answer? So Jesus was not very loving when he commanded it in Matthew 18? Paul was not very loving when he commanded it in multiple places? Titus 3, 10-11, reject a factious man or heretic as the KJV translates it at our first and second warning. 
Romans 16, 17 through 18, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 5, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain, from such turn away. Second Thessalonians 3.6 We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. And so on. These are coming from the mouths of the same men who talked about loving your neighbor and loving your God, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's no conflict. In fact, it is the most loving thing to do to deal with someone's sin, not let it fester. Just as it is the most loving thing for a doctor to do with a cancer patient. Not to just pat them on the back and say, I'm sure you'll feel better tomorrow. Or let's just not worry about that. Let's deal with the tumor. Let's get it out of there. It is certainly the most loving thing to do with the church if the man will not listen. Because the church will be leavened. As Paul warned in 1 Corinthians 5, he says there, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I in my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, power, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. It's for his good. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may become a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. It was not loving to leave leaven as it is and let it spread throughout the whole dough. It is not loving to leave cancer as it is to spread throughout the entire body and infect everything. And in this case, when we're speaking of the church, everyone church of Corinth was boasting in their tolerance and in their love. They were winking at sin in the process. They were proud of their magnanimous, non-judgmental spirit. And Paul was not impressed. You should have mourned instead, but you're boasting. While we're on the thought of judging, this is another objection. Jesus said, judge not that you be not judged. Surely you can't Reconcile church discipline with that command. Well, answer, the Jesus who said, do not judge that you be not judged in Matthew 7 was the same Jesus who said in Matthew 18 to regard them as heathen and tax collectors when they are unrepentant and won't listen. 
are we making Jesus contradict himself? His point in, judge, in not judging in Matthew 7 has a context. It can't just be ripped out as a standalone verse. It has a context, and the context is hypocrisy. I'm not qualified to micromanage my brother when I have a log in my own eye. But the exhortation is remove the log from your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. He does not suggest that it is impossible to remove the log from one's own eye, and that therefore no one is ever qualified to pursue any kind of disciplinary measure as though everyone always has a log in their own eye and therefore is permanently disqualified from ever dealing with it. That's not what he's saying. And finally, one last objection. Doing church discipline will split the church. Well, it might. But if it does, it will be a necessary split. Imagine the Israelites arguing that way about the prospect of Achan. Well, if we do that, Lord, some of them will be against it. Some of them will accuse us of being judgmental. Some will accuse us of being unjust and unfair and unloving and impatient. Some people might start grumbling in our midst and then we'll have a bunch of grumbling going on. This is an objection I first met with in my first church out of seminary. It was a woman in adultery and when it came to my attention on behalf of an elder's wife and this was the first I'd heard of it. I went then and talked to the elders and with the premise that, well, we need to address this. She was trying to steal a man away from his wife. And the elders basically said to me, oh, we can't do that. The church wouldn't understand. The church is too new. It's too young. It's too fragile and immature. It would probably split the church, maybe ruin it altogether. My comment was, I guess we don't have much here then, do we? But they wouldn't, they wouldn't agree. We couldn't have come to an agreement, and I couldn't carry this out single-handedly. It's, we call it church discipline for a reason. It's not pastor discipline. It's church discipline. The body has to come together in unity to do this. And without them being on board, it just wasn't going to work. So I had to start looking elsewhere. And the pastor in those days helped facilitate that process of looking elsewhere and ushered us out and our income was cut a third. There are costs. There are costs of discipleship. There's cost to doing what the Lord says to do. There's no promise here. If you do this, everyone will like you. Don't worry. You may lose your job. You may find yourself without any income. What's more important? Doing what God said to do or having an income or having a job or having everyone like you? Well, the Lord took care, took care of us. Truth be told, many are afraid to carry out church discipline because they don't want it to ever be used against them. If we all abide by the same tacit non-intervention clause where I don't meddle with you and you don't meddle with me we have a back scratching club scratch your back you scratch mine we do have a deal then periodic scandals yeah that's the price we have to pay for our back scratching arrangement 
All these excuses are hollow in the face of the clear teaching of Scripture. They're the fig leaves that we patch together to hide the nakedness of why we actually reject church discipline. (coughs) Namely, cowardice, nepotism, partiality, a casual view of sin, or the fear that the same standard of purity might turn around against us someday. And for the record, I have no eagerness to do church discipline. What I'm eager for is the power of God in our midst. Since being here in Seneca for about 19 years, we've been through this on about six different occasions. And it's never been easy. It's not fun. I have never enjoyed it. And my fault continually, each time, has been that I take too long. Explain things away. Maybe it's not that bad. I really don't want to do this. But I would rather this church close down and continue no more than to continue on with a leavened church that depends on sinful tolerance to keep the pews occupied. Jesus died for our sins. Shall we continue in them? Paul questions and reasons that way. Jesus died for sins, including scandalous sins that require church discipline action. Shall we coddle and protect the sins that Jesus died for? Did He suffer for that so that we could coddle it and wink at it? Surely not. Therefore Israel, the sons of Israel, cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, for they have become accursed. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. It's difficult to do things like this. We need the grace of God to help us. We are unable to do anything apart from Him. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I can't carry out church discipline. I can't care about it. I can't care about the church to the degree that I need to. I can't care about her purity. I have enough trouble with my own sins and dealing with those, much less other people's. But the message of this text is clear. And it's not a message that's confined to the days of Joshua. Let's pray. Father, help us. We are not trying to create uh, a society in which there's a circular firing squad. And we're always nitpicking at each other and we're always got out our magnifying glass and are looking each other over to spot faults and problems and so that we can go after each other. But our problem is oftentimes the opposite, a sort of sinful tolerance that comes in and winks at sin. Lord, forgive us. Cleanse us, deliver us from our idols, deliver us from our cowardice, deliver us from our fear. Help us to obey you even when we don't feel like it. In Jesus' name, amen.